When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, podcast listeners. Before we go to this week's episode, I want to tell you about an upcoming online masterclass we're hosting with the presentation coach, Graham Davis, on November 25th. He's one of the world's leading public speaking coaches and has worked with CEOs of multiple FTSE 100 companies and leading politicians. In the masterclass, he'll provide a robust and repeatable methodology that allows you to be concise and compelling, whether you're speaking in a boardroom or just on Zoom. His techniques will dramatically improve your impact in every possible speaking scenario, be it an investor pitch, a board meeting, a select committee appearance, or even a virtual keynote. Join our live and interactive masterclass with Graham Davis on November 25th to take your public speaking skills to the next level. To find out more, visit intelligencesquared.com learn or click the link in our episode description. Now, this week, we're featuring the second edition of our debate to stop climate collapse, we must end capitalism. Now, it's hard to believe that it was this year in January that we held the first edition of this debate in a packed, sold-out crowd in the Royal Geographical Society. As I don't need to explain, a lot has happened between January and now. And earlier this month, we decided to stage the second edition of this debate to see if the arguments had changed since the COVID-19 pandemic and to give people who couldn't make the first one a chance to ask their questions and vote in the motion. The debate featured some familiar faces who were in the first debate as well as some new speakers. And a quick reminder, if you do enjoy it and you want to watch some of our upcoming debates, cast your vote, ask your questions to the speakers. You can do so today by joining Intelligence Squared Plus. Just go to www.intelligencesquared.com plus and use our special podcast discount. Type in the code podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at the checkout and get access to all our upcoming debates and discussions in the coming months. But now let's go to this week's episode. Thank you very much and hello to all of you who are watching wherever you are and welcome to this Intelligence Squared online debate to stop climate collapse, we must end capitalism. Now, I have got here the results of the um, the opening vote, uh, which is um, for the motion, that's to believe believing that we must end capitalism, um, is 17%, that's roughly one in six, um, against the motion is... 40%, two-fifths, and the remainder is undecided, 42%. So there is a great deal to play for, but at the moment the pro-capitalists are ahead. Whether they will survive, we shall see in the course of the next hour. Now, our first speaker for the motion is Fahana Yamin. She's an international environmental lawyer and a leading activist in the Extinction Rebellion protests, um, she's also one of the co-authors of a book called This Is Not a Drill, an Extinction Rebellion Handbook. Fahani Yamin, over to you. 
Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks for this uh, opportunity to rerun the debate. As we only have a short amount of time, and I want to convince those uh, 40% and the 42% undecideds, I'll just structure my talk in three main buckets, you know, defining what is capitalism? What are we talking about? What do we mean by climate collapse? And then spend most of the time uh, arguing that, uh, you know, we must end the toxic version of capitalism that we have right now in order to create safer life conditions on earth. So what is capitalism? Well, it's roughly speaking, an economic system where the means of productions are privately owned for the generation of profits and accumulation of wealth is allowed. And currently, this particular version that uh, is prevalent in most of the world right now is based on three fundamental flawed characteristics. One is endless growth. The second is an assumption that there are endless resources and that they are interchangeable, that money is fungible with nature. It doesn't matter whether it's in the form of uh, technology or or land or or, or money. Uh, all of those things are, are equal. And the other aspect of capitalism is a deliberate and widening social and economic inequality that is built into the system. You need some degree of inequality, but more and more of it is essential for its uh, efficient operation. Now, historically, capitalism is, you know, two, three hundred years old. And frankly speaking, it's dripping with the blood of slavery, with colonialism, with imperialism and with environmental destruction all over the world. And these are part and parcel of its extractivist human rights abusing DNA. That's what I would argue. It's very difficult to extract the good bits of capitalism from actually the history uh, of the last 300 years. And I know that you're going to hear a lot about the creativity and the entrepreneurship and the innovation that's resulted in the last 300 years as a, as a result of capitalism. But I don't want you to forget about where its roots are and what uh, the wealth that it generated came from. And it's come from these characteristics, which are deeply flawed and I think imperiling the planet. What is climate crisis? Well, what is the climate collapse? Climate collapse for many countries, for many vulnerable people are already experiencing that. And we're not even at the one degree mark yet. In Paris, all of the world's governments, backed by all of the world's scientists, agreed that the global temperatures that we should try and limit our uh, temperature rise to was well below two degrees. And in fact, to aim at the safer 1.5 degrees that so many vulnerable countries had argued. And the reason they'd argued that is at two degrees, you have an almost complete collapse of the world's coral reefs with a collapse in fisheries and fish protein for many millions of people. You have uh, multiple breadbasket failures all across the globe. You're already seeing heat waves and wildfires affecting major parts of uh, the, the Australia, Europe and North America. You'll see major cities and uh, where most of the world's populations are based, threatened by floods, by typhoons, by droughts and inundation. And, uh, you know, this is where we're heading, actually. So the most important point is that Currently, under the capitalist system that we have now, we are heading to ecological collapse. We are heading towards social and political collapse in many parts of the world. And uh, currently, temperatures are on track to being nearer three degrees than the two degrees, let alone the 1.5. So I think it's imperative that we end this version of capitalism and we try and create safer conditions for life on Earth. And what does that mean? What does ending capitalism mean? I know it's a scary sort of idea and 
Maybe people lack the imagination of what a world different, a different world would look like. And I really urge you to think it's not pie in the sky. It's really happening. So there's an immediate switching that is going on, for example, to a circular economy where we don't simply extract resources, use them once and throw them away, whether it's plastics uh, or wood or metals. We try and reinvent the innovation cycle to recapture and reuse them. We must end this assumption and our uh, business as usual practices that are based on growth. Uh, A 3% growth rate means essentially that the global economy doubles every 24 years. And we simply don't have, you know, a double planet each time to go with it. Resources are very limited. And basing our economies on the circular economy and basing our economy on the fundamental principle of well-being of uh, uh, the the planet the planet and its people is essential and must be put at the heart of the global economy and I want finally just to say we must have a dramatic end to the social and economic inequality that characterizes capitalism at the moment we have 2,153 billionaires who have more wealth than 4.6 billion people today. The top 10% of humanity emits more than 50% of its emissions, mainly in the form of expensive luxury emissions from food, from fashion, from flights. And these are fundamental lifestyle choices which have to be grappled with and cannot be tackled by simple end-of-pipe technology measures. So I think the restoration of nature... And the immediate recognition and respect for the human rights and the land rights in particular of many of the world's indigenous peoples is crucial to reforming capitalism in ways that make it uh, human rights and people and uh, planet respecting. As a final sort of statistic, you know, 40 to 65 percent of the world's land is held collectively, not privately, collectively by the world's indigenous peoples. And yet they only have a 10 percent recognition of that legally. So once we achieve that restoration, we'll be, in fact, in a much better place um, uh, and avoid collapse. Thank you. Well, well, Fahana, thanks very much. And if this was a an, an offline real world debate, you would be getting a storm of applause from your supporters and I can applaud you now for sticking to your um, time and I'm going to move straight on to our first speaker against the motion who is Adair Turner. Now Adair Turner or Lord Turner is chair of the Energy Transmissions Commission. He's a former chair of the UK Financial Services Authority. He was the first chair of the UK Climate Change Committee and Director General of the CBI. And that is only a brief summary of the many other posts he's um, held held as well. Um, Lord Turner, Adair Turner, over to you. Thank you very much. This debate is not about whether climate change is a potentially catastrophic threat to humanity, but about how to limit it. We must limit global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. And to do that, we must cut emissions from energy, industrial, transport and agriculture to zero by 2050. So the question is simply how to do it. One way might be to reduce carbon intensive consumption. And there is certainly a role for that in the already rich world. All of us should cut our carbon footprint by using public transport, by walking or bicycling, by reducing flights or by cutting red meat out of our diets. But we have to be realistic about that approach. 
In India, where the commission which I chair is working on how to decarbonize both electricity and industry, there are 1.35 billion people currently using one third of the energy per capita that we use in the UK. And they want to enjoy a higher standard of living, which means more air conditioning, higher quality transport services, and that means more energy. So while lifestyle changes must play a role, the main route to radical emissions reductions must be to use energy more efficiently and use zero carbon forms of energy. And the good news is that that's absolutely technologically possible and we know how to do it. We need to electrify as much of the economy as possible, increasing total global electricity supply four or five times and getting all of that electricity from zero carbon sources. But that's possible because each day the sun shines down on us 8,000 times as much energy as human use. And the cost of solar electricity has collapsed 85% in the last 10 years. We must also use hydrogen in multiple applications and make that hydrogen in a zero carbon fashion through electrolysis of water using zero carbon power. We absolutely can build a zero carbon economy while supporting growth in still poor countries. And the best way to do that is not to reject capitalism, but to regulate and tax and direct capitalist activity while still using private enterprise and competition to help get there at least cost. Tesla would not have grown as rapidly without clear regulations which forced the initial development of electric vehicles. But battery costs would not have come down 85% in 10 years without cutthroat capitalist competition between alternative battery providers. And looking forward, we should have strong policies to force capitalism to do the right thing. We should, for instance, ban all sales of internal combustion engine cars from 2030. But we should then leave it to competing capitalist firms to work out how to build electric cars in the most efficient fashion. Now, right-wing ideologues will argue that if you regulate and tax capitalism in that fashion, it's no longer capitalism at all. But that is nonsense because capitalism can come in many different forms and we can choose the form we want. Fahana has actually said it. The word capitalism means a system in which most, but not all, of the means of production, distribution and exchange are owned by private enterprise competing in markets to make profit. And capitalism can flourish and deliver benefits for humanity, even if and precisely indeed because it is tightly regulated and appropriately taxed. Indeed, capitalism was most successful in delivering prosperity, in delivering growth for the many, not just the few. In the 1950s and 60s, when it was combined with tight financial regulation, with top marginal tax rates far above current levels and with much lower levels of inequality. But nobody doubted then that Germany, Britain and America in the 1950s and 60s were capitalist economies delivering more rapid growth and far, far better environmental results than the non-capitalist economies of Russia and Eastern Europe. Now, Fahana argued that it is essential to capitalism that you have to be able to take whatever money you've got and buy whatever resources you want to buy, however extractive they are. That is simply wrong. Capitalism can say we are going to ban tobacco if you wanted to do that. We could do that. And within 30 years, what capitalism should say is 
that you are only allowed to use fossil fuels when they are so prohibitively expensive that you will apply carbon capture and storage to capture the CO2 from them. It does not need to be a, an extractive process, provided we have the regulations sufficiently tight. If we embrace the innovative potential of capitalism while constraining it, taxing it and pointing it in the right direction, and that's what we ought to be doing, we have a chance to prevent climate catastrophe. If instead we seek to abolish capitalism, I think we will make that catastrophe more likely. Thanks very much indeed, Adair Turner, for your concise and forceful exposition of the case against the motion. I'm going to go straight over to Anne Pettifor, who is our second speaker for the motion. Anne Pettifor is a distinguished economist, um, author of The Case for the Green New Deal, which was published last year. Um, she's also notable for having predicted the financial crisis in 2006, a year and a half before it happened, in a book called The Coming First World Debt Crisis. Anne Pettifor, please back the motion. Thank you very much, Edward. Now, while I agree that Adair's presentation was forceful and, uh, and effective, I also think it was delusional. I think he's talking about a form of capitalism that existed between 1945 and 1970, known in all economics textbooks as the golden age of economics. But it is an age that is gone. I think it's delusional to believe that you could ban tobacco or you could ban, you know, the use of fossil fuels today, because the whole point about today's capitalism is that it has been designed precisely to avoid and to prevent governments from regulating and taxing. Hence, for example, when the European Union tried to tax Apple and tried to get Apple to pay the 13 billion euros it owed in taxes and took that to the courts, the court said no. The law says that Apple has the right to move her cap their capital across borders and to deposit in tax havens like Ireland if they so wish. They don't have to pay taxes to Europe, right? So that's because capitalism has evolved to detach itself from democracy, to detach itself from national institutions. Indeed, the designers of the capitalism that we have today, Mr. Frederick Hayek and his co colleagues in the Geneva School, precisely wanted that, to encase capitalism, if you like, in a rigid structure which would prevent governments and, 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 and democracies from intervening in the way capitalism, and in particular financial capitalism, worked. So I think it's delusional to think we can regulate. We can't. That is the point. That's why we have political uprisings against the system. You know, those, those uprisings may be inchoate. They may not be very cohesive. They may not be very well organized. But they are saying no to a system which is actually stripping governments of authority and of power. Everybody knows that governments can't bring back jobs. Everybody knows that governments can't regulate Apple. Everybody knows that Amazon can avoid, can destroy our high street, but doesn't have to be accountable for that. So that's caused, you know, massive social unrest, never mind what it has done to the ecosystem. So I want to agree with Kahana here that capitalism has inflicted serial failures on both societies and the ecosystem. That's why it had to be suspended effectively for the duration of the pandemic. You know, fed, public institutions, central banks, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the ECB had to be mobilised 
to bring back capitalism from the brink of, of collapse, essentially. You know, public institutions, taxpayer-backed institutions, had to bail out these private sector bodies based in Wall Street, London and, and Frankfurt. So capitalism, you know, pretends to be free market, to to pretends to enjoy the disciplines of the market, which require that they take losses when they make mistakes, but always draws on governments for taxpayer support. But the point is that capitalism, we now know, is of little use to human civilization. It cannot, for example, guarantee good, secure, well-paid jobs for the population. You know, it cannot guarantee, for example, public health. We've discovered that in this pandemic, shockingly. The market can't provide public health. And when the British government tries very hard to use the the private sector and the market to guarantee public health, they have been shown to fail dismally. And in the meantime, thousands, if not more, are dying. So capitalism can't do that. And capitalism, most importantly, can't decarbonize the economy. It's delusional for Adair to think that capitalism can uh, can electrify, can can, for example, invest in carbon capture. Capitalism can't do that. It's too risky. That requires state intervention. That requires governments backed by taxpayers uh, for for that kind of risk taking to emerge. Capitalism is too fearful, as Mariana Mazzucato always argues. You know. Capitalists are like timid mice when it comes to risk-taking. The state is a roaring lion and willing to take the risks that will be necessary to transform energy, transport, land use, and in particular, our care sector. These are really important sectors in the economy which capitalism can't handle. So I think it's about time we ditched the ideological debris that is capitalism. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. Anne, and you have to, again, imagine the applause rippling around the auditorium. Um, our final speaker is Jesse Norman, who knows a thing or two about capitalism, because um, he's the author of books, um, including biographies of Edmund Burke and Adam Smith. He's also Conservative MP for Hereford, and he's a member of the government, but he's not speaking as a member of the government now. Jesse Norman, can you save capitalism's bacon? Well, thank you very much indeed, Edward. And yes, indeed, I am not speaking as a member uh, of the government. Uh, and uh, I was very interested to hear what uh, Vahana and uh, Anne said. But I must say, I found nothing to agree with uh, in it. And it was noticeable throughout that there was no point at which they spelt out what any alternative to capitalism uh, might be. Now, I think that's a bit of a a mistake. If you're arguing for something, you better have something up your sleeve that makes it uh, more plausible than, or that is more plausible than what you're arguing against. But in fact, I, I want to suggest one thing, that contrary to what Anne said, capitalism is not a designed thing at all. And there's no such thing as capitalism in just one form. What we're surrounded by is a whole variety of different models of uh, economic development in the world, and many of them have a a broad structure we might call capitalist. That is to say, they are based on private property in large part, um, systems of regulation that respect that, uh, and uh, states that benefit from the taxation that comes from free market 
or constrained free market activity. And if you think of that as a definition of capitalism, then, of course, you're automatically recognizing that the Swedish economy is a capitalist economy and the German economy is a capitalist economy, as well as the US and China and Hong Kong and many others. So then you might ask, well, what is the basis? What is the benefit of doing that? And I, and I want to suggest to you that there are several core benefits that come out of the nature of those economies. And those are things that are profoundly worth keeping. The first is, of course, the one we automatically think of is that they do generate, by and large, and of course, one can always argue about how this uh, may uh, uh, transpire in a particular country, but they generate tax revenue, and that tax revenue supports public services. So out of a capitalist economy, when it's working well, you get economic growth, you get jobs, uh, and you get the tax revenue that supports public services. Now, where does that come from in particular? What are the elements that make that happen? Why is a, a, a capitalist system different from the alternative? Uh, and here, I just want to point to four things, prices, uh, regulation, investment, and innovation. Now, I spent a large chunk of my early uh, adulthood uh, working in Eastern Europe. I was running a, a charity that gave away medical textbooks from uh, Western countries, brand new cancer and other textbooks to uh, doctors. And it was very noticeable if you went around communist Eastern Europe uh, at the time that you did not see anything that would, that would be regarded as capitalist activity. So the joke uh, in uh, Poland was, um, as uh, Edward will know well from those parts, is this the shop that doesn't have any meat? No, this is the shop that doesn't have any milk. The shop that doesn't have any meat is round the corner. And that hinted at the complete absence of choice and the complete absence of markets in those economies. And the result was catastrophic. So the worst polluting industrial plant in Europe was the alu aluminium smelting works at Katowice uh, near uh, Krakow. Why? Because there were no prices and therefore the communist regime was unable to work out what the input price for a, a ton of smelted aluminium should be or what the output price should be. It just thought of everything in terms of inputs and it was ruinously wasteful and ruinous for the local environment and of course the national environment. Indeed it was an environmental black spot across Europe. So the first thing is prices. There was a famous moment when some Russians came to New York for the first time and they admired the system, uh, the economic system there. Wow. And then one of them said, tell me, who is the commissar responsible for bread distribution in America? And someone said, well, actually, we don't have a bread commissar. It's done through markets and it's done through uh, not a design system, as Anne would have you believe, but the astonishing uh, interactions of free exchange according to regulation. Regulation is the second thing. What distinguishes a functioning, a well-functioning capitalist economy is that it does care about clean air, clean water, clean soil, low carbon, sustainability. And Adair has sh shown exactly how that can work by setting objectives and then allowing markets to work within a regulatory framework to those objectives. The third is investment. Why is it that the world's GDP barely rose between the year zero of the common era and the year 1500. And when it did rise, it was a result of a little bit of change uh, time of the Black Death and then a little bit of change in the 17th century. And then in the 18th century, it began to grow and it grew and grew and grew. And the result was a thing called the Great Acceleration. What changed? Well, one can have different arguments about that. But the broad thing that changed was that the world discovered markets and market exchange 
And although it was never, if it was done properly, entirely free, it was always according to some rules or some regulations, uh, it was that exchange that powered human well-being and human prosperity. That's the change that made the difference. Let me end up very quickly by pointing to one final point and then rebutting two things quickly. Solar panels have fallen by 99% in cost over the last 30 or 40 years. Why? Innovation. You get that from a market system. And finally, do not confuse capitalism properly so-called, properly functioning with corporatism, with imperialism or with extraction, because these are very different things. And capitalism in itself is something that we should be profoundly supportive of. Thanks very much indeed, Jesse Norman. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. We are now moving on to the part of the debate where you have your chance to put questions to the speakers and to make points. And the first one, um, is already here, and it's a question to Adair Turner specifically. And it goes like this. Lord Turner suggested that we can choose our form of capitalism, and the form we choose can easily ban, for example, tobacco or the internal combustion engine. Perhaps that's true, but I don't trust those in power to do these things. If it was that simple, why has it not already happened? Is Under capitalism, is it ever possible to give the environment more or even equal weight than profit for the powerful? That's an anonymous question, and I'm going to let Adair Turner answer it now. We have to win political arguments. We have to win political arguments to constrain uh, capitalism in the appropriate fashion. 
But can we win those arguments? Yes, I suspect we will. I think, for instance, it's highly likely that in 2030 we will ban uh, the internal combustion engine sales uh, in the UK. I think that's about to be government policy. Government policy is already 2035 and they're consulting as to whether make it 2030. So it's absolutely possible. But I think the challenge for Anne and for Hana here is they assert it is impossible to win a political argument which will constrain capitalism But it is possible to win a political argument which will overthrow capitalism. I cannot see the logic of that political point of view. I cannot believe that you are going to create a majority to overthrow capitalism. If you can do that, you can also create the majority you want to tax and control and regulate capitalism to put it in the right direction. I'll give you that. I'll 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 give Anne a chance in a moment. Yeah, in a, in a moment, Alan, I'm going to, but I just want Adair Turner just to ask the, answer the question which he was asked. Is it possible to, um, you, you say that, that capitalism can abolish the internal combustion engine and, and tobacco, but these things haven't, ha- haven't actually happened. So w- what's your prime example of capitalism abolishing something which has massive externalities and um, makes life more miserable for everybody who makes a few people rich? Well, uh, in about 1953, I think it was, we banned the use of fossil fuels in residential heating in London. There were people who had previously made money out of that, but we decided that the external collective benefit required that to be banned. That was done in a capitalist society, and we need to do exactly the same in relation to plastics, in relation to the internal combustion engine. And there are lots and lots of examples of that type. Super. So now I'm going to ask um, Anne um, to respond to your challenge. If you can get a political, if you believe you can get a political majority to abolish capitalism, why can't you get a political majority to constrain it? Oh, I, I mean, I... <laughs> I, I think that's a silly question because I didn't... I, I'm not talking about destroying anything, frankly. I'm merely saying that the possibility of governments, especially democratic governments, to constrain capitalism is now almost impossible because of the way in which, you know, 1953 was a system of capitalism known as the Bretton Woods system. It was primarily designed by John Maynard Keynes. And by the way, can I just say to Jesse Norman, it's a pretty cheap shot to bring up East European communism and Khrushchev's comment in New York about bread, you know, to us, please, you know, let's get this debate, let's make this very serious. The fact is that 1953 was a system known as the Bretton Woods where actually, you know, Governments were in the driving seat of the economy. We now live in a system in which Wall Street and the City of London are in the driving seat of the economy. Now, I I think you can take them out of the driving seat. I think that's possible. I think it's possible to argue that you can take them out of the driving seat. I'm going to come to Fahana in a moment. I I, I think you just just have to uh, answer Adair's specific question, which is um, if you think you can get the political majority to... Get, put, put, get them out of the driving seat, isn't that? Re- and that is really just a different form of capitalism, really, isn't it? It's just capitalism with a bit more contr- bit more control over the rich and powerful. I think we. I think the point is this: that we're always going to have market systems. Societies have, for five thousand years, had systems based on markets, where markets were in our village town and we regulated and managed them. We now live in a world in which be, markets have been deliberately detached from society, detached from governments, detached from markets. So it's so hard to change them. Now, I mean, you know, I think you can bring markets back into the regulatory framework, and that's what I'm arguing. 
Right. It's, it sounds to me as though that might be a, a different motion, which is not quite end capitalism, which has a more dramatic sense. But uh, but um, yeah, but, but hang on. Okay. Well, now I want to go to Fahana because Fahana, you 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 you've been asked, um, what are the alternative? What is the alternative political system or political economic system to capitalism? Is there anywhere in the world that has done what you think ought to be done and done done it successfully? Yes, there are many countries that are moving faster towards a a greener, kinder society. And those are countries that, by and large, are ditching the concept of unlimited growth, ditching the concept of GDP as our main metric, and are moving towards putting well-being and happiness as the main uh, ways in which we reshape our thinking. They're also investing far more, you know, by the state, by bringing together different coalition of collaborators, not just billionaires who are in it for their own private profit. And let me just answer this and point example, about, you, so for what, example, uh, Nepal... Before that, before that, can you just give, Farhana, can you just give an example of which country you're talking well, about? Well, cu- currently New, Zeal- New Zealand has just returned a New massive Zealand. mandate. There are countries like Costa Rica, countries like Nepal, you know, the larger countries... The, the 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 fall in renewables and solar panels came from China and what Germany did it didn't come from private entrepreneurs at all it came from a well regulated system and why doesn't that well regulated system and that pricing system work it's because these big corporations stymie progress that is why we don't have a global carbon tax i've spent decades you know fighting for one i've spent decades trying to regulate pollution uh, and have emissions permits and so forth decades trying to get the net zero goal into legislation and all of those things have been jeopardized stymied and progress has been you know greenwash has been the the result of the last 30 years and that's something jesse and adair need to own they need to own why the system is leading us to three degrees already and and not keep saying, oh, if you only did this, if you only did that, well, we've tried um, it for 30 years and it didn't work. It's, 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 I think we, we, I hope in the discussion we'll get on a bit more, um, be able to drill down a bit more on this. It seems to me there's a bit of a gap between saying we want to be a bit more like New Zealand or a lot more like New Zealand or a lot more like Nepal or a lot more like China. Um, but I, I want, I want to come to you, Jesse, because you tried to make a response to Anne, but were, um, te- technology, um, intervened. Do you really want to defend your, your, your position that there is the only alternative to capitalism is, is East European communism? Or was that, was that a bit of a cheap shot? Uh, it wasn't very cheap. <laughs> shot. Uh, thank you. And I, I wish, by the way, um, that Intelligence Squared had put me and Anne on the same side or me and uh, Fahan on the same side, because I don't know why you've inserted this gender split between us. Um, I think the uh, I, it wasn't, of course, a cheap shot. The point I was making was a very simple one, which is, what is the alternative? And the most recent alternative in which someone seriously questioned the basis of capitalism was uh, in the communist period. Now, it turns out, though, that neither Fahana nor Anne is seriously questioning the basis of capitalism uh, because they both accept, or I think certainly, let me just finish, I certainly accept, or certainly uh, Anne accepts, that we are going to be in a market-based system. I, I agree. 
I don't have any brief for extraction. I think Extinction Rebellion have done a phenomenal job in advancing this agenda. I couldn't be more supportive of uh, sustainability. I think a circular economy is in many ways a kind of capitalist economy. And I think uh, a system which taxes people appropriately and spends it on public services is absolutely the right kind of approach we should take. Uh, and I'm also, I have no brief for, for inequality, particularly. So I think we can all agree on those things. But they are perfectly achievable with um, political will within a capitalist system. They do not require the abolition or the ending of capitalism. And that is, after all, the motion that we are disagreeing with. Um, and you want to come back very briefly on that. Yeah, I just want to say that, look, you, Edward, you didn't ask us to lay out a plan for an alternative. You asked us whether or not, why, you know, if, if capitalism should survive. So, you know, if you wanted us to design an alternative, I would have prepared a quite different talk. And I can offer alternative ideas on, on how it should be. But the point is this, we have an existing system. That system has to change and has to be transformed uh, into a new system. Now, how, what that is, is something that I think would take three hours to discuss. We, we all think it's going to change and evolve. We have close uh, aligned ideas in many ways about how it should evolve, make it more equal, more sustainable, uh, cut the use of carbon, improve uh, uh, all of the biodiversity that we have and uh, uh, um, end the possibility of extinction. No one demurs from that. I, I just think that ending capitalism is not the right solution. And it sounds to me like you think that as well. But if the, the financial well, system a, a, is so misaligned and what we're arguing is you have to accept that that misalignment cannot be just fixed here and there by a, a tax here or a tax there. The fundamentals of our financial system, which is still going in vastly, 95% you know, of the capital expenditures of the oil majors, yes, there's been some dramatic developments lately, is still going on more extraction at a time when we cannot burn the existing amount of fossil fuels that we have. So the idea of regulating them within the system is itself toxic. And that's what I would like Jesse and Adair to acknowledge. And that our attempts to do that through the system, through politics, has not worked because the politics mean that those players are very powerful and politicians do not listen to the publics. That's why the publics, that's why our young people have had to go on the street and take essentially that but kind of action. Hana, They've had to yes. vote with their feet because um, they can't on. use the voting system. But for Han, I detect a dangerous note of agreement here that everybody seems to be saying that um, everybody agrees that the current system isn't working very well. Everybody agrees that it should work better. Everybody broadly agrees the direction of change and that would be is, I think there's a, a, d a d danger you're going to end up on the, the same team so I want to push back against where I think some of your points of disagreement are that um, Fahana, Jesse Norman made a very powerful point about innovation and the collapsing that, that capitalism enables innovation because it allows people to reap the rewards of the risks that they take and his prime exhibit there was solar panels and I want to ask you would you accept that the collapsing cost of solar panels and the extraordinary um, technological breakthroughs that have gone towards enabling that cost, which are not only in China, in, in, in a lot of the technology has been um, in, in America and West Europe and so on. It, isn't that that kind of in innovation which we so desperately need, an essential part of a market system in which risk takers get, their, you know, get rewards for the risks they've taken? Well, I bet Anne would answer this better than I would, but actually it's... Well, I know, but I'm asking you. It's, a, it's, it's the regulation and the investment by countries that have led 
the revolution in renewable energies. It is not private risk-taking individuals. They've come on board when the conditions for those markets have been created. And what we're arguing about is whether the conditions for green markets, green, true green sustainability can really be created at the moment without us saying, you know, the current system sucks and it isn't delivering. For example, and let's not just focus only on uh, greenhouse gases. Please, can we also just face the fact that we are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. We are exterminating, and I use this word advisedly, we are committing ecocide. So this isn't just about gases and carbon capture and storage. This is about life on Earth and people on Earth. And the small islands that I've represented for 30 years are on the brink of extinction. So those do not come back with carbon capture and storage. You know, you cannot bring back species. And and just saying we'll do that through wealth and through carbon capture and storage, you know, isn't about that is you know, this technocratic, let's just control some gases. This isn't that problem. Climate change isn't a problem, just about a few gases. So that's... Well, I think we have to... I'm going to have to... Fahana, I've got to crack the whip a little bit here because the, the, the motion which you all signed up to debate, I have to remind you, was um, that we are going to, do, to, to prevent climate collapse, not make the world a better place or you know, you know, mass extinction, these all things, but to prevent climate collapse, we must end capitalism that's a very powerful statement and it wasn't we need to tinker with capitalism tinker with capitalism differently but i want to come back there's a very good question coming which is i think i'm going to give to adair turner which is the about the weakness of the ultra the, the, of the system to the influence of the ultra rich and this has been touched on by anne as as well in her speech but isn't the way in which wealth turns into political power and the narrow interests of the wealthy a really fatal weakness in in the, in the capitalist system? It's inter- interesting. It's actually one of the main critiques that Osama bin Laden had of why the West doesn't work. He said rich people buy political power and the democracy becomes um, becomes a sham. Um, so without necessarily going in, f- f- into full um, bin Laden mode, um, how do you re- re- rebut the criticism that all these attempts to regulate our way to a better capitalism fall foul? of the political power of the super-rich? I think that it is a very big danger in America, but I think the problem is not capitalism, it is the current political system of America. I think if you allow, as we should never allow in Britain, paid-for advertising on TV, if you abolish independent institutions like the BBC, if you create a space where the dialogue is entirely owned by money then you can, uh, as we have seen in America, create a potentially catastrophic effect, and it may be Trump will get elected again tomorrow, and if it is, it could be a potentially catastrophic effect. But that is to do with American rules on campaign finance, which we don't have in this country, which we don't have in New Zealand. Let's be clear, New Zealand is a capitalist economy, right? It is a well-run social democratic capitalist economy. So, yes, I absolutely agree with this, and I am horrified by what has happened in America. I am horrified by the decision, the absurd decision of the American Supreme Court about 10 years ago that money is free speech and that corporates are citizens, which I think was one of the most absurd legal judgments that we have ever had. But we do not face that problem in the UK, nor in Sweden, nor in Germany, nor in France. So it is not inherent to capitalism. It is a potentially fatal flaw within the American political system. 
Let me come back to um, Anne. Do you want to respond to that? Um, would, would you accept that, that New Zealand is actually a capitalist economy? Yes. And, and you know, I, I, don't, I mean, we're not dealing here with ideal alternatives. I would love to spend a lot of time talking about how to build alternatives. We're dealing here with whether or not an ecosystem can survive, can have within itself an economic system that is so extractive, that is so destructive of nature, that it causes pandemics, that it is going to bring about climate shocks, that, you know, globalization acts, if you like, as a vector for disease. Or, uh, and, and this cannot be sustainable. That's what we're arguing. So let us agree that this current economic system is burning up the planet. What do we do about it? Do we say, oh, sorry, but this is a fine system. You know, Khrushchev didn't like, he, he was too stupid to understand what a clever system this is. Let's just stay with it and to hell with the planet. That's what we're arguing. We're saying, no, look at what the problem is and then let's discuss what to so- how to solve it. And, you know, the, one of the political problems in the United States arises from the, from, the, from, the, um, from the system which is so blatantly unfair and that deprives people of decent jobs and public health and, and all of those things. And naturally, people behave badly and react badly. Yes, I- I mean, I think I think Adair's got a point that we need to be careful about saying that the um, America epitomises capitalism because you could just as well say America epitomises American capitalism and, and uh, there are many other variants. But um, for Han, I just want a question come in which I want to put to, to, put to you. Isn't it the case that the, the, the most ecologically friendly countries in the world are rich Western ones? If you want to see really spectacular um, protection of the environment and attention to um, emissions and so on, you're looking at places in, for example, Northern Europe, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Canada, these sorts of countries, and and New Zealand, which you mentioned. So isn't isn't the um, answer to ecological problems not less capitalism, but more wealth, because rich countries are the ones that can afford to protect the environment? Well, I fundamentally disagree. I think most of the Western countries as a as a block have acknowledged even legally their historic responsibility, including all of the countries that you've mentioned, you know, the way in which supply chains work, we export a lot of our destructive practices and, and those don't count in the system. So the burdens of pollution are now being picked up in the global south as our dirty industries move out there and we just import uh, and, and consume the clean goods, as it were. Countries like Norway, I'm very sad to say, you know, are are green at home, but are expanding their oil production and calling it cleaner oil. They're imposing the burden of abatement to the global south by paying essentially for forests to be grown and protected in other countries. And this is the kind of incendiary, you know, burden shifting, which the global south and which the poor are feeling really, really like angry about that, you know, how dare the richer countries who have caused this problem now go into denial and say they're going to pay others to to limit or change or find solutions of the south. There is a tremendous anger about that. So I don't accept that these richer countries have uh, are the model, and I and that's why I didn't cite them actually. And I think the 
The way in which we shift to a different economy must be based on very different principles. And it's those principles that we're arguing about. And I think those are the principles of the circular economy. They are putting into effect the ideas of Kate Roworth and others uh, that, you know, state-led, citizen-led, people-led economy is what we need and not private, profit-driven economy of that, uh, that we've had in the past. Vala, you're, you're in danger of stealing what may be the best lines for your peroration, which will be, which, which is coming up when we move to, to final speeches. But I, I mean, unless my memory fails me, I asked you, you, you said there were countries that are getting it right. I asked you to give some examples and you, and you, did, mention, you did mention New Zealand. But anyway, you'll have a chance to, to respond to that because we're now going to go into the, um, the final one minute summaries where you can either make a point that you wished you'd made earlier, you can make a point that you enjoyed making, make it again, you can rebut a point that you think someone else has made and got wrong or you can introduce any other elements to the discussion you think it's been lacking, that's been lacking. These are one minute, and I'm going to be very strict, and there'll be a loud ping when you reach 55 seconds, so please don't ignore it. And we're going to go in reverse order. So our first speaker against the motion is Jesse Norman. Uh, Thank you very much indeed, uh, Chairman. And I would say this, that actually there's been an astonishing level of agreement across the different speakers. I think we all agree that markets are here to stay, that they need to be made as effectively regulated and as green and sustainable as possible if we're to save uh, the nation. And that means vigorous collective action to do that. But by the same token, I think everyone has agreed that broadly that has to take place within a capitalist economy. And when the other side was asked which they would nominate, they mentioned New Zealand. And rightly so, because it's an extraordinary place. I would simply say this. You don't have to believe that capitalism is extractive in its nature, dominated by finance, uh, opposed to circularity, opposed to biodiversity, or opposed to a sustainable way of life, uh, or indeed opposed to happiness and well-being. We can and we shall, I hope, evolve our capitalism to accommodate all those things within a properly regulated, productive, growing economic framework that looks after the poorest in our society, supports them, allows them to flourish and uh, gives them the public services that we all rely on. Thanks very much indeed, Jesse Norman. Straight on to you and Petifer. So I believe we must have markets and we will have markets, but I don't believe we should have financial markets because money is not uh, a commodity and uh, money is not something that ought to be part of a market. Right now, the world's financial assets are three times the real economy. And that's because markets in finance have, you know, detached themselves from the real economy, but are actually having a massive impact on the real economy. So I want to argue that we can have a very, very different system from today's capitalism, today's financialized capitalism. I don't think the other speakers have recognized that we don't live within the Bretton Woods system any longer. We live within a financialized system designed by Frederick Hayek. What I would like to see is the kind of capitalism, or the kind of economy, should I say, that was proposed by President Roosevelt in 1933, when he dismantled the gold standard and took Wall Street out of the driving street of the economy and used the resources of the state to mobilise opposition to the Dust Bowl. Thank you. Adair Turner. I'm not sure that Anne certainly uh, supports the motion she's talking for, and I agree with so much of what she says. I mean, my macroeconomic uh, heroes are Franklin Delano Roosevelt and John Maynard Keynes. 
And I think they saved capitalism and created a better form of capitalism. I am deeply suspicious of some aspects of financial capitalism. Indeed, some of you may remember that I became a little bit infamous in 2009 by saying that quite a lot of the activities which went on before the financial crisis in our financial trading rooms were, quote, socially useless. It is a phrase uh, which has stuck with me and I'm very happy to have it. But I believe in markets. And I just want to refer to one other person who believes in markets whom I admire. Tomorrow, we're going to have uh, an election in the US. I hope Joe Biden wins, and I think he's probably the best chance for the Democrats. But I was a strong supporter at an earlier stage of a more radical Democrat, Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren believes in regulating, in taxing, but she has had the, said the, the, the statement that she is capitalist to the bone. And I think we need to be committed to capitalism, but committed to controlling and directing it to produce benefits for humanity. And our final speaker to support the motion is Fahana Yamin. Um, thank you. Well, the most important things that we really care about, we do not leave to markets. And I think COVID has shown us that. So health, education, security, national security, you know, we don't leave those to markets because when we did, markets made a mess of them. So it's not the case. It's markets or no markets. It's actually an intelligent way of recreating a system in which citizens, the state, uh, and new uh, collaborations with citizens can can rekindle the imagination and have a new system, which we cannot describe right now, but there are many, many ideas which were supported. And I would ask people at the end, really like the Green New Deal, for example, I would ask the people who are voting at the end and undecided to vote as if you were 15 years old today, to vote for those who have no choice and to vote for the longer term, because that fundamentally is what capitalism as it is now is not doing. It is not putting forward the interests of the vulnerable, the young, the longer term. And if it did that, I would be in favour of the motion. And sadly, that's not the case. So please vote with the truth that you know in your hearts that the current system of capitalism is not delivering and will lead to climate collapse as well as social and ecological collapse. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed, Fahana. And it's now time for you, the audience, to cast your final vote on the motion, which I must remind you, because there have been a certain number of nuances and glosses um, put, but the motion which you voted on at the beginning, which all the participants signed up to debate for or against, and which you're voting on now, is to stop climate collapse, we must end capitalism. So, whether you're 15 years old, younger or even older, please vote for or against the motion, and if you still haven't made up your mind, vote undecided. And while that debate is going, that vote is going on, I want each of the panel, because there was quite a bit of an agreement, we're now out of the sort of contentious thing, just to say in one or two bullet points what we, I think everybody agrees there should be some kind of Green New Deal. So put aside the question of how capitalist this is or not. Just give one or two one sentence bullet points about what would be in your ideal Green New Deal, starting with you, Fahana. Oh, I would, I would just put Kate Rowe's donut economics into operation. And I think the Green New Deal is an excellent way of doing that. And those of you who haven't read it should should really read it because it redefines what we mean what by it, what is... it's It's essentially putting the economy in the context of a safe system, both for people and planet. And currently, the current form of capitalism is leaving people and planet unsafe. 
So that is a, a very big yeah, I'm, um, I'm, change of focus. OK, so by, at least by Donut Economics is the first element of the Green New Deal then. Let's go... Um, Adair Turner, I'm very keen to have specific things. What will be your, your, the first day you become... your world king, as Boris Johnson once said you want to be. It's Green New Deal Day, your first, first minute of the first day. What would you actually... What would you do? Ban sales of internal combustion engines from 2030 ban any plastic incineration, any transfer of plastics to landfill uh, from 2025, introduce a £50 carbon price rising to 150 by 2040, and taking the revenue from that to make sure that you compensate lower-income people who would otherwise suffer from the impact of that on their residential bills. And you've only asked me for one or two, but I think one can quickly illuminate another 10 or so of those which would make a hell of a lot of difference. Um, Anne Pettifer, your world queen now. Um, it's Green New Deal. Um, what's, 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 what's at the top of your entry? So at the top of my entry would be the restoration of policy autonomy to sovereign governments. I would like to restore sovereignty to governments. And the way to do that is to manage the flow of capital across borders, to manage capital mobility. A very practical solution which restores dem- democratic sovereignty to governments. And finally, uh, Jesse, two bullet points from you. Uh, well, I would. I can't. Uh, I can't necessarily. I, I can only admire Anne's uh, Brexity desire to assert national sovereignty, and I can't really comment on policy because I am in the government. But what I could do is encourage everyone, alongside Kate Raworth's book, to read Adam Smith's two great works, uh, and possibly to tuck the lectures on jurisprudence in between the uh, theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations because there's more wisdom in those three books than in most of the economics literature written ever since then. Right, well thank you very much indeed for your admirably concise and um, and practical suggestions ranging from Donut Economics to Adam Smith. I can now tell you the final vote but before I do that, to make sense of it, I'm going to remind you what the first vote was. The first vote on the motion, I repeat yet again, to stop climate collapse, we must end capitalism for the motion 17% against the motion 40% undecided 42%. The final vote for the motion 39, 39% so almost doubled the anti-capitalists against the motion gone up from 40% to 49% and the undecideds have collapsed from 42% to 13%. So I think we can say that, in a way, everybody's a winner. The people proposing the motion did increase their vote, but they still lost it. The people against the motion increased their vote even more and still won it. And the undecideds will be tuning into future Intelligence Square debates or maybe going off to read the books that have been recommended by our panellists and also the, the other books which they very modestly didn't mention, although they did write. So I d- declare multiple winners... And it remains to me only to say thank you to our speakers for the vigour and good humour with which they engaged with each other and also my attempts to keep them more or less on the subject we were supposed to discuss. I want to thank the audience for tuning in, both right now and those of you who are tuning into the podcast, and also thank Intelligence Squared for hosting yet again such an enjoyable and stimulating evening.